I want to talk about the things we brag about. And no one ever wants to admit that they're a bragger. No one does. But we are. We're bragging people. We like our golden stars on display. You know the golden stars you would get in elementary school that says, look, you did it, you achieved this. Or, you know, in today's culture, hey, you showed up, so here's a participation trophy. Um, you know, we, we love our golden star moments. We love our stories. I caught a fish this big. And we love talking about those. Man, you had to be there, that shot that I made that no one else was around. So I'm just going to tell you this is the shot that I made. We love sharing our stories. We live in a world that's captivated by it. We pull out our phones, for those that have smartphones, and use those. And we take selfies of our moments to say, hey, guess where I am? This is the view from my office today. Look what I'm going to eat. Oh no, I don't know if I can do it. What would we ever do if we couldn't share our stories? If we couldn't ever kind of boast a little bit about the joys we have in life? We love to brag about those things. Sometimes... Sometimes we even love to brag not about the good things, but we love to brag about the bad things. I'm so tough. You don't know what I've gone through. Oh, I'm going through the worst of times. And, and I just, I just want to, I almost want to brag about it. Because here I am in this moment that no one else could possibly know what I'm going through. And here I am sharing it. And then we brag about how we live our life. Sometimes we think, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty a good person, actually. I look over my shoulder and I can see people that I would say, by my own justification, by my own kind of filter, well, I'm better than that guy. My life's better than her. I've got it together more than this person. I've definitely achieved more than that one ever will. And we start stacking our resume. In this life, and it kind of we carried around with us and prepared, and here we pulled the story out of my pocket. Let me show you the photo. Let me tell you about this scenario. And then when we get to the gospel, when we come to church, we can even find ourselves in a in a in a moment of bragging. I go to this type of church. I I'm a Baptist. Uh, I was baptized under this preacher. Uh, my family has been in church for this many generations. Um, I attend and I'm there every Sunday, or I, I'm definitely a tither. I mean, I've seen people that, that man, they, they really love and dig tithing. They even have it on the back of their, their license plate, I tithe. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Um, but all of those things, whenever we, we put this face on, of how much we know, how much we do, how good we are, and how good we've got it made, when we get confronted with the Gospel, though, we find something that's very, very difficult to swallow. Very anti-everything we generally live for. We live to make ourselves, much of ourselves. But the Gospel actually says, you need to make much of Jesus. And then it shows what Jesus did to make much of you. Who really, when we look at ourselves in comparison to Him, we're not that much. We're not that big of a deal. And yet we see that Him who is so holy would love us who is so unworthy. It's mind-boggling. And the Gospel 
wakes us up out of this slumber of just trying to do what everybody else is doing. Brag of my life. Look at me. And it says, wow, I don't want to be sleeping that stuff anymore. I don't want to be just lazy and apathetic in that kind of just same old, same old. I want to, I'm, I'm awake. My eyes are wide open to this Jesus. It's a wonderful, wonderful, glorious revelation that this is who He is and He would love me. We've been going through the letters, the letters of First and Second Corinthians. We're in the very first chapter of First Corinthians, so we haven't got too far. And we've talked about this idea about being awakened and how Paul is writing to a church that seems a little bit of slumbery. They seem a little apathetic to their devotion to Christ. They seem a little distracted from doctrine, and they're just facing all kinds of difficulties. And Paul is basically saying, "Wake up!" Not because you're not being effective, but wake up because you just, you're missing out on this Jesus. You're missing out on what He has done for you. You're missing out on the powerful message of the cross and how it changes everything. And I want you to know what God Jesus has done. It is worth boasting about. It is a biblical background. It is a biblical foundation for your boasting. A boasting that is good. So today I'm going to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. It's going to be on the screen. And today we have, we're doing something a little different. We love to foster in our kids a desire to share God's Word. And, and someone has asked me, hey, can, can I read one Sunday? And so I'm going to invite Grace Walker to come up. She's in, she said she would read this, this uh, passage that I'm going to be preaching on today. And I, I said, yeah, that would be awesome. But it's going to be on the screen. I ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. She's going to read this for us. Let me get a a microphone for her somewhere up here. I will just use this black one right here. That's Stephens. All right. And I'll just be your microphone stand if if you need it. All right? So here we go. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many wise from the human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many... Noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant, insignificant, and despised in in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, and is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sacrifice, and redemption, in order, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thanks, Grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness and I thank you for your word today. I thank you that we can have people openly shared and we live in a place where that is, that is something we're able to do. But God, I pray that we wouldn't miss on the power behind it today. Help us to understand who you are and what you do and what you say and what that means for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we have this letter. And it's a, it's a letter. This is these, uh, these epistles are. That's the churchy word we use for it. But they're letters. They're, 
they're personal and they're powerful and they're testimonies from a person who cares to a church. And in them, God used His Holy Spirit to inspire the writer through what they were written to be unknowingly pinning Scripture that would be preserved for us. And when we see what's going on here, we see the author, this apostle who had been transformed by Christ. I mean, he was a person that had every pedigree, every degree on the wall to be able to live boastfully. I mean, he would be the person you look at and be like, that guy's got it made. You know, you do the double trigger fingers. You know, um, that would be Paul. He, he just had that, that scenario. He had that background. And he had that zealous nature. He had that pursuit of the godly. Um, unfortunately, it was misguided. There are many people who pursue the godly, and yet they are aimed in the wrong direction. They're captivated by a, a, a worldview, a philosophy of faith that is not what God intended for their life. And even though Paul was a Jewish man, what had happened when Jesus came on the scene is he had completed everything that the Old Testament had promised to the Jewish people. It was the promise in the Old Testament. And the New Testament is the provision for that promise. And it completes what was lacking. And Paul was staying back in what was lacking. He didn't see ahead, but he was awakened by Jesus. Even in the middle of trying to be against what Jesus was about. And that transformed his life. He became a founder of many churches. He, he became one of the world's most prolific missionaries. And he wrote many of the, the letters we have in the New Testament today. And he's writing this church in Corinth, which is in this little strip of land between uh, Macedonia and Greece. And, and it was a city that Paul really cared about. But he's seeing what's going on and it breaks his heart how the people are facing difficulties and distractions in their devotion from for Christ and their doctrine with Christ. And, and, and it's, it just hurts him. And they're living in a life of, of bragging about all these other things that are going on. We'll see that as we go through this letter, some of the things he addresses. But here in this opening line, he's, he's laying the case. He's making the case for why they need to stop going down the direction that they're in. To pause, to look back upon Jesus and consider why His way is greater than any way we can try to come up on our own. And so we're going to look at that today and we're going to see what does the Word of God ask those awakened by Christ and His cross to consider before they ever boast or brag about anything. There's a few considerations I want us to look at. And the first consideration is this. Who Jesus is. Now it's important to realize that, that this is the 26th verse of, uh, of the chapter, so obviously there are 25 verses before it in this letter. But when Paul is writing this letter, he's not writing it to a church that is without a knowledge that there are other Scripture. That there is an Old Testament. That there is the Gospel writings. The Gospel writings talk about who Jesus is were beginning to be circulated around the, the era at that time. And so, he's not writing these, this thing and saying, I'm just sharing you with one little stripped out uh, Bible verse, leaving it by itself as if it's the complete entire revelation of God's Word. He's letting them know that in light of all that God has promised, in light of all that He is, in light of all that He says, this is why I'm making this case. So, I, I don't want to just want to start with verse 26. I, I want you to know there's a lot of books, there's a lot of letters, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of revelation before this letter. And Paul is not writing this as if that is absent. He's making them recognize 
that this is all that God has compiled. And so when we talk about Scripture, we need to realize that sometimes a, 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 a little passage of Scripture is good. It's, it's good to pass as a reminder. But it is not good to be just left alone without the entirety of God's Word. We need to be people that are holding that dear. And in looking at the entirety of God's Word, and in talking about this, this consideration, he says, I want you to consider who Jesus is. What does the Scripture say about this Jesus? It says He is omnipotent. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact expression of His nature, get this, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after making purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That in other words, Jesus is so omnipotent, He doesn't have to have just the power of everything in His hands. He sustains it by His words. That's the omnipotent power we're talking about that we need to consider. That Jesus is not only omnipotent, all powerful, He's omniscient, He's all-knowing. Psalm 147, 5 says, Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. That means Jesus infinitely knows everything all at once about all things. Past, present, and future for Him who is, who was, and who is to come. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He knows every single thing in every single moment at all times. That's something to consider when we're talking about God. That this Jesus that the Bible talks about is omnipresent. That He is God. And He says, and when the, the prophet Jeremiah was writing, He says this, Am I a God who is only near and not a God who is far away? Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? Do I not feel the heavens and the earth? Do I not feel it? I know that some of you are in our life groups and you're talking about the enemy. And it's good to recognize the enemy and, and, and tactics and schemes of, of the enemy. We talked about that. We talked about that's, that's a part of the source of our sin in our life. Obviously, it's our choice. When we sin, because that's our disobedience, we can't blame someone else. We can't just hold up the card and say, the devil made me do it. We can't do that. But it's important to distinguish between the enemy and the Lord. That the enemy is finite. He does not have infinite understanding. He doesn't know all things all at once. The enemy is not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere at all times. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. But guess who is the one who is on your side? That's why Paul would say to the church at Rome, if God be for us, who? I mean, who could be against us if this is who God is? We need that consideration. And not only is God omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, but God is omnibenevolent. That He is all-loving. That the Lord is righteous in all His ways and faithful in all His acts. He shows His love in every single one of them. Every single one. I know that may be hard sometimes when you see God bringing punishment and discipline. But who of, any, who of us would say, well, we do discipline for our children and our family members out of love? It's a demonstration there. That when we consider this Jesus, who He is, He's all those things, but He's also eternal and infinite. That He is the everlasting God, the Creator of the whole earth, who does not grow faint or weary. He is self-existent. He's the One who was, the One who is, and the One who is to come. He is self-sufficient. That He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. That there's nothing that makes God work. He makes everything else work. He's always been. That He is also holy. In Hannah's prayer, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she declared in her prayer, there is no one 
holy. No one holy like the Lord. His holiness is distinctively different than any other form of holiness we could attempt. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's not writing with an absence of the church at Corinth pretending like those other Scriptures, those other revelations don't exist. He's letting them know, I'm setting you up based on what has already been presented to you. What has been taught to you. In those 18 months I was with you. I'm making you consider, once again, who Jesus is. And that right there will cause you to stop in your tracks. You'll be like, whoa, what am I thinking? You ever had that moment? Where you're doing, you're going about somewhere and, and all of a sudden you just come to this eye-opening eureka moment fact of the truth of who God is and it just kind of like, just catches you off guard. What am I doing? Really? This is, this is what I, where I'm at? We need those. A second consideration the scripture teaches us, and this is where we get into verses 26 and 27. Whenever Paul brings all that's there and brings it back to what he's writing. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So Paul's saying, here's the second consideration. Not only who Jesus is, but who you were. That the world had this distinctive look at who you are as a Christian. And sometimes that, that, is, that comes about even today. That just because someone knows you are a believer, all of a sudden you get this kind of distinction, this stereotype of this is who you are, this is the limit to your understanding, this is the breadth of your knowledge, this is the extent of your compassion, this is the exclusive nature that you just take. And what was astonishing... For what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's like, consider your background though. Just consider where God started with the redemption. Paul never considered himself too great of a person. Now when others bragged, he said, oh, if you want to bring out bragging rights, if you want to talk, compare resumes, we'll compare resumes. But here's what I want you to know. I count them all as rubbish in comparison to knowing him, his suffering and his resurrection. That's how much I consider my resume. But consider the people Jesus started with. I mean, even, even Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph lived in a little town called Nazareth. In those days, it was considered the Podunk Boonies. We would call that Kentucky. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's, that's not nice. That's not nice. I know people love Kentucky. Um, that was not fair. That was, that was like a shot across the bow. But no, they came from a no-name place. And then, whenever he made his birth in Bethlehem, which wasn't the largest city, by the way, it was down the road from Jerusalem, the place where the kings lived, Bethlehem was really not that big of a place. And then, whenever the angels came, it was revealing to shepherds. You know what shepherds smell like? They smell like sheep. And so God started with these people of, of meager means, meager backgrounds, that the people of the world would consider, all right, that's a standard living, but it's not really what I would say, rocking the boat, major, uh, major participants in this world's activities. And then when He 
brought his disciples, his posse together, his crew. Who were they? They were fishermen. They were accountant, tax collectors, government workers. They had a means, but you know, they weren't really just the people of supreme stature. Now, indeed, Jesus saved people that came from incredible backgrounds such as Paul. People such as Cornelius. We see these accounts throughout the book of Acts. The people like Lydia. But here's the thing. God didn't say, you've got to have this standard of life, and this standard of living, and this social status, and these achievements before I can save you. Jesus started at the bottom because it's a picture of where all of us really start, no matter how good we think we've got it. In comparison to who He is, the gap and distance between our holiness and His and our achievements and His is is incredibly vast. And Paul's saying, this is what Jesus did for you. He didn't say you had to have all this stuff in your act together to be saved. He, He... took you out of a place, and and yeah, many of the world would say, why them? Why that person? Why wouldn't you go after some big fish? But Jesus did that. So consider who you were as how the world considers you, and consider how the Lord considers you, that He wasn't looking for the meritus. He was looking at the ones He could show His merit to. He wasn't looking at the ones who achieved. He was showing what He did on the cross is sufficient. To make people holy. Third consideration. Consider what Jesus did. Verses 27 and 29. It says, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. In other words, God is doing something in you that completely turns the world topsy-turvy. One of the accusations that comes in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter uh, 26, I'm not really sure exactly the address, but I know it's in the book of Acts, is one of the accusations that comes to Paul and his compadres as they're serving in mission. And you know what the accusation was? These men have turned the world upside down. It does not fit our natural, easy Glorifying the self-flow. What they're saying is that we are not good enough and we have to submit ourselves. We have to trust in this resurrected King for us to be saved. That goes completely against the tide. But Paul was saying to the church at Corinth, God did this because that was exactly precisely in His plan to say that how He could raise someone who considered a nobody and make them a child of a King. That changes things. That shows the point of God's rescue. What Jesus did. You need to consider that. How amazing that is. How thought-provoking and life-changing that is. You need to have another consideration. How Jesus changes everything. Verses 30 and 31. It says this, that it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus who became Wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In other words, what Jesus has done is now spun our view of what wisdom looks like. 
He has transformed how we see redemption and justification. He has significantly radicalized what we think of as sanctification. He has brought about a new view of redemption. And all these changes everything about our life. If our view of wisdom is from Jesus, if our view of righteousness is from Jesus, if our sanctification is from Jesus, if our redemption is from Jesus, if everything points back to Jesus, then guess what? Jesus is going to change everything. If everything in our life that holds dear moments, we think of how we think about things, how righteous we are, how holy we are, and how we actually are justified with God, if all those things point back to Jesus, then let me tell you, it's going to have a riveting effect in your life. And God planned it that way so that we would boast in Him. So consider number five, what we will do because of what He has done and what we can do only because of what He's done. It's not in the self that we were able to do this because Jesus is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. So everything that we need to do from now on is only because of what He has done. But will we do it? What does it mean to let him who boasts, boast in the Lord? Is there actually a good way to brag on the Lord? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. It's not, hey, I'm a member at Eastgate. That's a good thing. I'm glad you are. But that's not worth bragging about. It's a great church. I love you guys. But if that's the status that we, we look to, to label ourselves with, We've aimed the bar far too low. If it's if I'm a Baptist, great. I believe Baptists are people of the book and, and people who hold dear the mission. And it's a good background. But don't aim the bar that low. Look at who Jesus is. Look at His story and how His story has collided and intersected with our story. And, it, and yeah, we may look at our life and say, wow, what a mess that you rescued Jesus, but I'm thankful that you came to rescue this mess and now my life is different and there's evidence of it. I call it my testimony. That this is what Jesus has done for me. Not because I was good enough, not because I was something in the eyes of the world, but because of what He did on the cross He rescued my life of nothingness and has made it something. And now I consider Him everything. That's my testimony. Where His story and my story have collided. And a testimony is revealed as evidence of Christ's work through our words and deeds. It is good to brag on the Lord. It is good to share this testimony. It is good to tell people that this is God's story and this is my story and this is what happens. And I just want to share it as evidence that what this book says, it transformed my life. Not because it's so many pages, not because it's so many words, but because the God who spoke it said, I love you. And I can make the difference. I can bring you back to what I planned for you. What is it that God planned for us? What is it that God does to rescue us? How would we share this testimony with so many others? That God, in His story, intersected our story. When we see this God who is so big and so holy and so awesome, and obviously because He's God, He's got a plan. But my life, when I look at it, doesn't always match His plan. How do I reconcile that? In fact, when I look at my life and I look at this world, 
And I look at all the things going on, I say, wow, God, you're holy, you're beautiful, you're intelligent, you're creative, all these things are going on in your life, and somehow my life does not match up to it. What I see in my life and the life of so many others when I look around is I just see brokenness. Why do I see that? Why is there so much pain? It's because this was God's plan, but man's choice was sin. It was sin. And we want to have a nice little eraser to pretend it's not there. And we want to attempt our own little things to get out by doing righteous deeds, by sharing in charitable events, by looking and putting on a mask of holiness. But we all just end up staying in brokenness. What is there to be done? How does his story connect with my story? And that's where the good news of the Gospel is so amazing. That this God who created us, this God who made us, this God who loves us, He sees us in our sins and our sins separate us from Him. And we try as we may to work out a way that our sins don't affect us. But we just stay end up in a brokenness. It's a repeating cycle. And so He intersects our world. He pays the price. He brings His story to our story. And He presents us with a choice. And the choice is not, alright, start living up and feeding your, your, your holiness savings bank so that one day you can present this, this good investment and this resume to me in heaven. But it is, see what I have done in your place. I have achieved what no one else could. And I am asking you to trust in what I alone have done. To walk out of your brokenness in faith by repenting and believing. Why is it repenting and believing? Well, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get to have the same results. You've got to repent. You've got to turn from the old way of life. And you've got to believe in what Jesus has already provided through the Gospel. And once you see that, once you see the great love of God intersecting in our life, and presenting us with a choice, and we choose to follow Him, that life experience, that life relationship with Jesus brings us back into God's design. And as we grow in God's Word, as we grow mentoring each other, we begin discovering more and pursuing God's design as it was intended to be. That the Gospel rescues us. That Jesus rescues us and brings us back to where we need to be with Him. You know what? That's three circles and a few words. That's enough to sit around a napkin with somebody. But it's the Gospel. That's the testimony we need to share. It's His story intersecting our story. And now it's wrapped up in my life and there's a demonstration of this. There's evidence. There's a testament. A testimony of what God has done through me in my words and deeds. And now I just want you to know it is good to brag on the Lord. To share that because of what Jesus done, Christ Jesus is our wisdom. And it's only in following Christ that we would ever walk correctly. Because He's the expert on life. He's the one that lived it fully. It's only in listening to Him that we hear the truth. And we need to take and discipline our ears to say, God, You are the Good Shepherd and I am am a part of Your flock. Help me to know Your voice and follow You because You're the one that speaks truth in a world of so many distractions. That it's good to brag on the Lord, not just because He's our wisdom and transforms our minds, but He transforms our souls. That Christ Jesus is our righteousness. 
that righteousness means right, a right relationship with Jesus. It's not putting on the mask and looking holier than thou. It's being restored with God. And our efforts I could never achieve it. Our efforts are just a cycle of brokenness. Only Jesus could be the sufficient one to pray through that, to, to achieve that for us. And it's when we realize when we come to Him that this doesn't come from us, we realize it's what God would be willing to do for us. He would consider us. That Christ Jesus is our sanctification. It's good to brag on the Lord for being our wisdom, our righteousness, but our sanctification is only through His presence sustaining us in life. It's a good thing that Jesus says, I will be with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. One of the prayers of Solomon when the temple was built in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, he's like praying and saying, God, be with us because it's only if you're with us that we will able ever be able to live rightly. That this right relationship with you will continue growing. That what you have made in my life where I am positionally righteous in you would also be practiced. The Christian gets to walk with Christ. And what greater company is that? He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnibenevolent. And if He could be with us, who could be against us? And by walking with Him, it's only by walking with Him that the stuff of this world doesn't dilute us, doesn't blemish our life and our testimony. And we get to brag that Christ is our redemption, that we can draw near to the one and only one who can deliver the soul. There are many men that can deliver many promises. It is only Jesus that can deliver the soul. He cures the life of the believer from past sin, from present helplessness, and from future fear. He is the great emancipator of the soul that delivers us from our sin and from ourselves. And if this is who Jesus is, the Bible makes it very clear this is who He is, that should wake us up. And that gives us something to brag about. And I'm going to tell you, when we share that story, that's what people need to hear. And I'm willing to say that's what people want to hear. They may not put it up very closely in the front, but something in our world makes us recognize there's something broken. And there's got to be more. Will we as Christians, those awakened by the Christ and His cross, share it and brag on the Lord? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this moment. And I just ask that You would help us to place our trust in You in this moment. It's easy to say that we trust in You. But Lord, You know where our hearts lie. You know the things that we struggle with. You know the pain in our moments. You know it all. It's not distant from You. And so, God, I pray that in this moment You would use Your Holy Spirit to just cast, cast who You are upon us. You would just open our eyes and help us to see who You are and what You've said and what You've done. And bring us to the point in this moment, what is it we need to do in light of all of that? When we consider all of that, what is it we need to do in this moment? What are the decisions we need to make here in this moment of worship? What are the decisions we need to make when we return to our homes? What are the decisions we need to do when we go back to work on Monday? What are the decisions we need to Make about the words that are coming out of our mouth, the deeds that we live. There's a lot to consider, but Lord, Your Holy Spirit gives us the ability to reconcile where we are with You. 
So Lord, reconcile us in this moment. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed in this moment. And I'm going to just ask you, consider all these all this message about this Jesus and the peace that He gives us and, and, and how He demonstrates His grace to us and provides His peace for us. I'm going to ask you this question. With the eyes closed, heads bowed, as a way of, of celebrating who He is, that, that you know that you have that peace and that grace gift that comes from Jesus. If today you would say, Pastor, I know what Jesus has done for me. I have trusted my life to Him and I just want to celebrate the peace that He has given me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I just want to, I want to celebrate with you. This is a way for us to acknowledge by lifting up hands that God, You did something incredible in my life. If that's you, raise your hand. Amen and amen. I'm thankful that you know that peace that comes from God. But I also recognize that there were hands that were not raised. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're questioning whether you have peace with God. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. I don't want to condemn you. I don't want to slam you. I just want to pray for you. And if today you're having trouble reconciling where you are with Jesus and whether or not you have peace from Him, would you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you today. As I said, there, not every hand was raised in the first question. and didn't see any hands raised in this question. But that means some people just don't know where what they want to answer. And today I want to tell you that there is an answer that's found in Jesus. That if you're lacking that peace from God, and that peace with God, I want to tell you it only comes from the Gospel. And responding to who Jesus is. And today... Even now, God sees who you are and there is no one too unworthy. Jesus says, I couldn't save. There's no one that falls in that category. And if you want that peace with God, you can do so simply by first admitting your need for peace. Admitting your need to, to walk away from the life and the endless cycle of brokenness and sin. If you were drowning, you would want to call out for help. This is what Jesus is telling you to do. To admit that there's a problem there. And that you need rescue. By believing that Jesus is the One who who came in and prepared and provided that rescue for us. That He's the promised One of God. The One who went to the cross to die in our place. And rose again. You need to believe that it's what Jesus has done who Jesus is and what Jesus says that saves us. And trust in Him. And lastly, you need to confess Him as your Lord. Confess your desire for forgiveness. Confess that you want Him to save you, but confess Him as the Lord and King, the One who saves. And if that's you today, and you want to trust in this Jesus, you want that peace, you can pray a prayer like this. It's not the words that save us, it's, it's the belief in the heart and then the confession with our mouth. But you could pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm in this this cycle of brokenness. Lost, a sinner, in need of a Savior. 
And I believe that You are the promised One of God that died on the cross for me and took my place and that rose again as the living King, the living God. I confess today that You are Lord and I ask You to save me, to forgive me of my sins and help me to walk following after You. Thank You for all that You've done. Thank You for Your great love that You have for me. Now help me to live for You. In Jesus' name, Amen. If that's You today, I want to ask one more question. I just want to be bold for a moment. If you prayed that prayer today, and you said, I, I know that I needed to do that, and I know I needed to trust in Jesus, and I needed the peace that came from Jesus. And I asked Him to save me today. If that was you, would you be bold enough to raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. All right. What we're going to do in this moment as the music plays, I'm going to let you pray for just a little bit more. However, God is working His business in your life. That's what needs to be dealt with. But perhaps there are disciples, there are followers of Christ in this room that, that need to make a, another decision. Maybe to unite with this church or, or to recommit their life to some part of, of, of giving glory to God. Maybe you just need to take some time to pray in these steps. Make them a place of prayer. Or you need someone to talk to. I'm going to be up here at the front. But whatever decision God is impressing upon your heart to do, to take that next step with Him, I'm going to be up here should you need someone to help you follow through that and make that known.